this coming Sunday is January 22nd, which is the anniversary of the 1973 uh, Supreme Court decision, Roe v. Wade, which legalized abortion. And uh, I wanted to share some things this evening related to the sanctity of human life. And to do that, I'm going to compare that with the uh, other teaching that is quite common in our day, which has to do with the, instead of the sanctity of life, the quality of life. And there's a real difference. And I want to try to bring that difference out this evening uh, through, well, basically through looking at how that idea of the quality of human life was one of the primary uh, philosophical uh, underpinnings of Nazi Germany. And then at the end of what I present, I want to just uh, have some things played over the sound system that I took off of Focus on the Family uh, website related to the sanctity of life. So you, I think you'll see a real comparison uh, between the two. But uh, let me just begin by saying that uh, the, the idea of the sanctity of human life is a foundational biblical truth, a foundational uh, biblical reality that comes up right away in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27, when God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And it goes on and says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So you have this foundational truth given on page one of the Bible. And it permeates the Bible. And it should permeate all of our thinking in relationship to life. Uh, it is so basic and so fundamental. Human beings are different than the rest of creation and have great value and worth because of being made in the image of God. Uh, it's true that sin has distorted that image, but even with that distortion, individuals of every age, and whatever sex they are, whatever race they are, uh, whatever physical and mental abilities they have or don't have, uh, they still have great worth and value because of who they are, beings made in God's image. When that basic biblical truth or biblical doctrine is forgotten or denied, inhumanity will inevitably fall. If you don't have that as a foundational understanding of, of humanity, you will end up in some form of inhumanity. And that's something that we'll see very clearly here as we look at uh, Nazi Germany. Now, the opposite of the sanctity 
of human life view is the quality of life view. The individual only has value if he or she meets some arbitrary standard imposed by others. Are you the right race? Are you the right sex? Are you the right age? Are you sufficiently useful uh, to society? Can you fun function properly? Properly being defined by someone else. Uh, does your life have enough quality to make it worthwhile? See, that's the quality of life idea. Does it have enough quality to make it worthwhile? So I think probably one of the most striking and stark examples of this quality of life view has to be Nazi Germany. That's why it's good to use that system uh, to present the ramifications of, the, uh, of that quality of life uh, view and the denial of the sanctity of life because it shows it so clearly, so starkly what happens when that basic understanding of man being made in the image of God is denied. <coughs> what you see in Nazi Germany is the concept that human life is not worthy to be lived if it doesn't meet up to a certain standard. And the result was the inhumanity of the Holocaust and all the other things that were related to Hitler's Germany. <coughs> now, what I want to do here just briefly, and this is so brief tonight, but uh, I think it'll at least give us uh, a little feel for how this developed. The rationale for Nazism was actually laid down years before, years before Hitler ever came to power in Germany. And that rationale had as its foundation uh, at least three major things. First, Darwinian evolution. Secondly, the teachings of Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche. And thirdly, an unbiblical Christianity. Uh, um, there are other factors, but I really think those are three of the main uh, foundational uh, forms of thought that brought forth, eventually, the Holocaust uh, and what Hitler uh, was able to do there in Germany. The idea of there being inferior and superior races was given supposed scientific credibility through the survival of the fittest teaching of Darwin. Nietzsche came along after Darwin and expanded on that theme and wrote of a master race, uh, a race of Overmen. The German word is Ubermensch, which just translated directly as Overmen. Sometimes it gets translated Supermen, a race of Supermen. But I think Over Overmen is is better because we got too many long images of Superman with a big S. 
Uh, and then, so, naturalistic Darwinian evolution, Nietzsche takes up on that, and then Hitler uh, and other Nazi leaders put that philosophy into practice. And uh, that's what we saw in Hitler's Germany. Now, Hitler was very fond of recommending Nietzsche's writings. Um, in fact, he gave a copy of uh, Nietzsche to Mussolini when he met him. Uh, who is this man, Nietzsche? Well, he was a 19th century German philosopher and atheist. Uh, he's the one that coined that little phrase, God is dead. And he despised Christianity. And the reason he despised Christianity, not just because he was an atheist, but because he felt like it uh, fostered what he called a slave morality. And by that, he meant a morality that puts the weak and the sick and the humble first. And he thought that was a very bad thing because that went against the basic instincts of man. And we need to live more by our instincts. So this was going against what we really are to be. Um, the teachings of Christianity subvert the potential for human greatness in, in Nietzsche's eyes. For, for mankind to become all that it could be if you start teaching that the weak and the sick and the humble should, uh, you know, be put first. You stifle that, that power, that courage, that uh, greatness, as Nietzsche saw it, of uh, mankind. So, uh, he basically believed that the strong must dominate the weak for the human species to advance. And you can see how that would come out of evolutionary thinking. Well, Nietzsche was just extending that. And so he saw that Christianity taught the opposite of that. So he said this about Christianity. Christianity was the highest, he said, Christianity was the highest of all conceivable corruptions. The highest of all conceivable corruptions. Nietzsche prized conflict and he, he praised warfare. Um, he thought that the, the, the weak had to be purged out of uh, the, the race for a for uh, mankind to advance so we could get to this place of being ubermensch, overmen. Uh, here's what he wrote. I'm just, here's a few quotes from Nietzsche related to war and uh, just how mankind could come to this place of being uh, overmen. He said that war would imbue people with that raw energy of the battleground, that deep impersonal hatred, that murderous cold-bloodedness with a good conscience. 
He's saying that in a commendable way, you see. That's what we need. He said, the beginnings of everything great on earth are soaked in blood thoroughly and for a long time. He said, one must resist all sentimental weakness. Life itself is essentially appropriation, injury, conquest of the strange and weak, suppression, severity, at the very least, putting it mildly, exploitation. That's what life is, you see, it's exploitation. And he said, he, he viewed it, he really felt like most humanity uh, was quite worthless and uh, a, an embarrassment to uh, the human species. He said this, all too many live, all too many long, uh, all, all too many live and all too long they hang on their branches. Would that a storm came to shake all this worm-eaten rot from the tree. He's talking about human beings, you see. Worm-eaten rot. They should be shook, uh, shook loose from the tree. Well, uh, that's just a little idea of this man's idea of life who said that God is dead. Now, Hitler and Goebbels, which was... Uh, he was uh, Hitler's uh, minister of propaganda and other uh, Nazi leaders embraced this philosophy of Nietzsche and uh, put it into practice. That's what you see in, in Nazi Germany. But instead of the straightforward uh, criticism uh, of Christianity that Nietzsche made, Hitler and Goebbels and others knew that, th that you couldn't do that, uh, you couldn't speak out directly against Christianity in Germany because Christianity had a form, or Germany had a form of Christianity that most people were part of. Uh, so they knew they had to try to incorporate German, German Christianity into Nazism. So they used Christian themes and Christian symbols uh, while at the same time they would deny basic Christian truth, especially related to what we're talking about here tonight, the sanctity of human life, all human life. They spoke of a positive Christianity, what they called a positive Christianity, which promoted the good of the state and of the German people. And in the midst of that type of portrayal of Christianity, Hitler would even, on one occasion, he portrayed himself like Christ going into the temple to chase out the Jews. That's one of the things he felt like he uh, was doing there in Germany. He had to chase out this this lower element that was corrupting the species. Uh, now, you would think if you had very much Christianity at all, you'd, you'd note that something was wrong in that type of teaching. Uh, but, sad to say, much of professing Christianity did not take a stand against Hitler. Some of it sided with him. Some of it just 
remained silent. Now, there were some Christians that spoke out, but that was by far the minority. <clears throat> he, I mean, when you realize, even early on, Hitler was saying these things. If a, if a Christian would have read Mein Kampf, they would have said, this, this does not match up with the Bible. Uh, if a Christian would have listened to some of his early speeches, um, for instance, here's what he said his desire for the German young people was. Uh, this is as he was taking control of the state-run educational system. This is what he wanted presented. He said he wanted for the youth, he said, a brutal, domineering, fearless, cruel youth. Youth must be all that. It must bear pain. There must be nothing weak or gentle about it. The free, splendid beast of prey must once again flash from its eyes. That's what he said he wanted for the German youth. In a speech, that was 1933, long before all this, uh, you know, the more um, uh, blatant uh, things of Nazism, the concentration camps and extreme forms uh, came to light. He was already saying things like that. So what, what, uh, what would a real Christian think of something like that when he says, I want, it, I want the youth to be brutal, domineering, cruel? <coughs> Let me uh, quote Nietzsche again. He said a healthy aristocracy, by that he meant an elite group. See, Nietzsche thought that the masses, and this is, uh, Hitler had this same type of view, the, the masses were pretty insignificant and really quite worthless. But there would be these elite uh, few, the, the ubermensch, the overmen, that were exceptional. And... Uh, he said, the healthy aristocracy accepts with a good conscience the sacrifice of untold human beings who for its sake must be reduced and lowered to incomplete human beings, to slaves, to instruments. So how can, how can a, probably the most educated nation in the world at the time, the German nation, uh, advanced technologically. How can a nation accept, how can a people accept a view that, well, he says that they should accept with a good conscience the sacrifice of untold human beings. How can that be? It can be because they had, they had replaced the sanctity of human life which is biblical, with the quality of human life. Those two concepts are, are exactly diametrically opposed. They'd, they'd replaced, they'd done away with the sanctity of human life and replaced it with this concept of the quality of human life. And, of course, ultimately it goes back to a denial of the truth of God which is where we get our understanding of the sanctity of human life. If, if, there's, 
if there's if God is not and if God is not spoken, then you have no basis for the sanctity of human life. So just think of the con of the contrast of what I've presented here. The, some of the things that Nietzsche said and then that were picked up uh, by Hitler and the Nazis. Think of the contrast with what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insult at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But just think of the contrast of the teachings of Christ and the teachings of someone like Nietzsche and what resulted there in, in Hitler's Germany. So what I would like to do now uh, to point out maybe the contrast even greater is just play, uh, this is just uh, a few portions from a program that's been probably a week or a week and a half ago on Focus on the Family. And what they uh, did was they uh, said that they were going to have this program on the sanctity of life and ask people just to call in and share their testimonies related to uh, their own experience uh, experiences concerning the sanctity of human life. And this was a 30-minute program, and I've cut it down to about 10 minutes, so you might hear some little breaks in there. Uh, and uh, I guess most of these actually deal with abortion, but not all of them. Some of them have to do with the elderly. Some of them have to do with the handicapped and, and just other situations that speak to this issue of the sanctity of human life. So why don't you go ahead and play that, David? Her 88th birthday was just around the corner, but there was little to celebrate. A simple walk was a distant memory, and she was unable to read or even watch TV. One beautiful afternoon while pushing Mom in her wheelchair through the garden, I noticed her wince and discomfort again. Too frail to adjust herself, I asked. Mom, what's your greatest challenge right now? Thinking she would direct me to the area of her bodily discomfort, her answer caught me off guard. In a slow, humble whisper, she uttered, My greatest challenge? My greatest challenge is doing God's will every day. It is showing Jesus' love to everyone I come in contact with every day. From showing Jesus' love to the workers who bring me a drink, to those who change my diapers. This attitude, which embodied my mother, 
gave her otherwise pointless life a purpose, a value, and a meaning. Yes, her body was broken, but her heart was alive and productive. Who but God can determine the value of human life? It was 26 years ago that I found myself pregnant, newly married with one-and-a-half-year-old twins and a seven-year-old. While this should have been a joyous occasion, it was not. My husband and I both agreed that it was not a good time to have another baby. I scheduled an appointment with Planned Parenthood to have an abortion at 9 a.m. that morning in March. My husband stayed behind to care for our children. When I arrived, I paid the fee and waited for my name to be called. During the wait, I began to pray, God, please don't let me make a mistake. Years earlier, I did have an abortion before I met my husband, but I had also recently given my heart to Jesus. Forty-five minutes had passed and my name had not been called. The receptionist informed me the doctor was running late. I kept praying, God, please don't let me make a mistake. Then another hour passed and still they didn't call my name. Anxiously, I checked again with the receptionist and she told me that this has never happened before. Frustrated and emotional, I sat down continuing to pray, God, please don't let me make a mistake. Now it is near noon and still no one knows where the doctor is. I stepped outside to phone my husband. He told me to come home and that everything will work out. So after nearly a three-hour wait in the abortion clinic, my husband and I made the decision not to abort our child. I was so excited and relieved. As soon as I had one foot in the door of the clinic to cancel my appointment, the assistant called my name. Shocked at God's amazing timing, I looked at her and said, No, I'm keeping my baby and left. Today, that child who was almost aborted loves the Lord with her whole heart. She's married and now expecting her first child and my first granddaughter. We are overjoyed. There are no words to express my love and gratitude to God for listening to my simple little prayer that day. God gave me just enough time to change my mind and save my baby's life. I'm forever grateful. At the age of 18, I had an abortion. A few weeks after the abortion, I looked up a six or seven week embryo in a medical dictionary and saw a picture. I cried and grieved secretly for that baby for many years. Eight years later, now married and desperately wanting a baby, I had a ruptured tubal pregnancy and almost died. I was miserable and I felt punished by God. Ten years later, 18 years after I'd had the abortion, I finally accepted forgiveness in Christ for the life I had chosen to end. My husband and I gave up on having a biological baby, and we adopted three amazing little girls. One year later, I found I was pregnant and delivered a healthy baby boy. One thing that isn't talked about much is the higher risk of atopic pregnancies after an abortion. Although the scars on your heart are far worse than any scarring you might have from the abortion procedure itself, it is not without consequences. With two babies now in heaven, I am comforted by the knowledge that they are both waiting for me in the everlasting arms of our mighty and forgiving God. I am thankful every day to the God who has changed my name to Mommy. Hi, my name is Mikey Peterson. and. I actually had an abortion in 1973. It was actually the year that Roe versus Wade passed. I was a young single mom who got pregnant, and um, even though I didn't want to, I didn't see another option. And um, I aborted a baby. My baby, the 
in the same hospital that I gave birth to my first two children in. And I would look in my children's faces and feel like a liar and a hypocrite and a murderer. And about 11 months later, I took my boys to their father's house and went to a hotel room to take my life. And a commodity broker had been telling me about Jesus Christ, and I grew up in a church. And I just said, hey, been there, done that. I know he died for my sins, so what? But that night in the hotel room, I picked up the Bible. And even though it didn't make sense, it prompted me enough to call him. And uh, I said, I don't know what you have, but I need it. And uh, I said, I've done something that can't be forgiven. He said, what's that? I said, I've taken the life of my own child. And he said, I've got bad news and good news for you. The bad news is the wages of sin is death. You need to die for your sins. And I said, that's what I was going to do. And he said, he said, but the good news is 2,000 years ago, somebody died in your place. And after all those years hearing that Jesus died for my sin, it finally made sense to me. He took my place. Ten years ago, my daughter, who was 17 at the time, became pregnant. And um, the boy's parents wanted her to have a, a abortion. His parents actually kicked him out of the house. And I went to meet with them, and they were very angry, asked me, what do I want from them? I guess they thought I was going to sue them. And I said, I don't want anything from you. I said, we have two young people who made a mistake. And I said, your son needs you, he needs your love now. And the mom broke down and cried and asked me to have him call them and get back in touch with them. Well, the result has been an amazing 10-year-old granddaughter that I have. I love her deeply. And I think God is using this uh, story to help others and to let them know, and even the women who have had abortions, that he loves them. He's a God of compassion, and he's a God of forgiveness. One of my hardest times was Christmas, 1984. My beloved husband died on May 23, 1984. Our children were aged 4, 3, and 2 years old. I did not know that I was pregnant at that time until two weeks after my husband died. I was so sad not knowing what to do. But I made up my mind to keep and take care of my baby the best I could and let God do the rest I could not do. January was my due date, but a baby boy was born to me on December 23, 1984. On Christmas Eve, we used to open our presents the most tragic Christmas for us. My husband was gone forever, who used to give gifts to us. Suddenly, a thought came to me, and I told my children, your dad had a very special gift for all of us. I quickly ran into the bedroom, wrapped my baby in an oversized Christmas stocking the hospital had given. We all smile and laugh and hug our baby boy present, while tears poured down our cheeks. It was a very sad moment, yet there was hope that only God knows what the future will be. One thing I know is, life is hard, but God is always good. Romans 8:28 says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. I am the mother of three special needs children, ages 6, 8, and 10. Our second son has autism, and at one time, I was plagued by rage, anxiety, and lack of sleep. Too much sunlight threw our daughter into tantrums. This has not been an easy road. But last night, our son with autism asked me to dance with him. To many people, this may not sound like a big thing, 
To parents of children with autism, we know it's a big thing. Even our oldest son said, Mom, I can't believe he's dancing. Part of the wonder of having special needs is the joy we get out of everyday stuff. Nothing is common. Nothing is taken for granted. I'd like to encourage other parents and parents-to-be who may be struggling. When I became a Christian in 1997, I had no idea what God planned for my life. But I can tell you this. Through these children, Jesus absolutely changed me. I know what it's like to have failed as a mother. And because of our children, I know the forgiveness and redemption that comes only through the grace of God. If you have a special needs child, then you are incredibly blessed. God's greatest gifts come in the most unexpected packages. Don't throw yours away. Don't give up. Ask Jesus to help you unwrap your gift. You will be amazed by what's inside. And remember, whatever you do for one of the least of these, you do for Jesus himself. He's with you all the way. Well, those were a blessing to me when I heard them. Uh, and to me, uh, just points out so graphically the difference between these two views of life that we've been talking about, the sanctity of life and the quality of life. Um, I wanted to read one last uh, little quote here, and uh, then I'll close with a, a, a verse from Proverbs. But this is from Pastor uh, Max Licato, and he tells about a sweater that hangs in his closet. He says he seldom wears it. It's too small. The sleeves are too short. The shoulders too tight. Some of the but buttons are missing, and the thread is frazzled. Logically, he says he should throw out that sweater, since it has no he has no use for it, and will never wear it again. It simply takes up space in his closet. That's what logic says. But love he says, won't let him. Why not? What's unusual about that sweater? Well, to start with, it has no label, no tag telling you wash in cold water. That's because it wasn't made in a factory, produced on an assembly line as products with a nameless, uh, as a product of a nameless employee earning a living. Rather, it's the creation of a devoted mother expressing her love his mother. The sweater is unique, one of a kind, irreplaceable. Each strand was chosen with care, each thread selected with affection. And so, even though the sweater has lost all its use, it has lost none of its value. Isn't that good? Even though the sweater has lost all of its use, it's lost none of, none of its value. It is valuable, not because of its function, but because of its maker. So is each life.
Proverbs 31, 8 says, Open your mouth for the dumb, for the rights of all the un- unfortunate. For the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. That's speaking about the sanctity of life, all life. 